Hello, and thank you for joining us from wherever you are. This is the SPS Replay Podcast from the New York University School of Professional Studies Student Council, featuring our professors, alumni, and members of the community. Every noon on Wednesday, we gather to hear about their career, their journey so far, and the story of how they got here. This week, we are joined by Dr. Karen Jackson-Weaver. She is an expert on educational policy, a historian specializing in religion, ethics, and political affairs, and is a senior associate vice president of global faculty engagement and innovation advancement at NYU. The original session was recorded on Zoom and was hosted by Martin Ma. Welcome. So excited to have everyone here. Well, welcome everyone. This is our first high event of the spring semester. And if you can tell by some backgrounds, my virtual background unfortunately doesn't work at the moment, but it is also MLK week. So that is very exciting. We are so excited to have you all here. I can just chat a little bit about what high is all about. And then I will turn it over to our moderator to start this exciting conversation. So how I got here, we like to call it the high series, was started last year and it is all about bringing members of our SPS and wider NYU community together to chat about personal and professional experiences, basically to where our speaker has got to now, how I got here. So we are very excited for this upcoming semester. We have amazing speakers, including ours today. So I will now turn it over to our moderator. His name is Martin. He is the social media chair on the undergraduate student council and he is very excited to moderate this conversation so martin over to you thank you nicole hello everyone and happy mlk week hoping you all enjoyed yesterday's school-wide events and our very own sps community service chairs evelyn and maria lucia's takeovers where they talked about their initiative during mlk week my name is martin ma and i am a freshman studying hotel and tourism management i'll be the moderator for today's high got here series with Dr. Karen Jackson-Weaver. Before we officially start, I want to take the floor and thank everyone who attended today's talk, especially our amazing undergraduate and graduate student council. In particular, events committee chairs Nicole Shores, Katrina Chan, and Sarah Gill for working day and night to organize this event, graphic design committee chairs Ariana Olivas and Susie Gerardo for making the graphics, social media design chair Anna Drow for promoting the event, director of podcast team Ali Weaver, and Director of Student Life, Tabitha, and Sue Ways for overseeing the entire event. Dr. Weaver, I'll start with a quick bio and then we'll begin. Does that sound good? Yes, that sounds wonderful. Thank you. Awesome. So Dr. Karen Jackson Weaver is a Senior Associate Vice President of Global Faculty Engagement and Innovation Advancement at NYU. She is an expert on educational policy, a historian specializing in religion, ethics, and political affairs and a former dean and resident at the Blupnik School of Government at Oxford University. Dr. Jackson Weaver has also served as an academic dean at Princeton University, as well as Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. She is currently vice chair of the Board of Trustees at the Princeton Theological Seminary. She's a former national series editor for the teaching religious studies series produced by Oxford University Press and the American Academy of Religion. Prior to her leadership roles in higher education, Dr. Jackson Weaver served under three gubernatorial administrations as the executive director of the New Jersey Armstead Commission. In this role, she facilitated and led institutes throughout the country and edited two volumes of primary source documents, which culminated in the publications. 
Reconstruction Reconsider the African-American Presence in American History and the Amstead Curricular Guide to American History. She earned her bachelor's degree at Princeton University, a master's degree at Harvard University, and an MA, Master of Philosophy and PhD in American History from Columbia University, where she was a college scholar fellow, merit dissertation fellowship award, and nominee for the university-wide teaching award. Before I let you do a little soft introduction, I just wanna say this resume really left me speechless and astounded. And I'm sure all of us here are equally curious as me to learn your career path and how you got here. So one of my first questions after you do your self-introduction is tell us about your story and what makes you want to pursue in the field today. And it would be great to include things like what are some of the obstacles you face as well as your most defining moment. And I'll, do the, I'll let you do the talking now. And thanks again for joining us today. Thank you so much, Martin, for that wonderful introduction and for framing everything about our time here today, how I got here. Hi, I love that you all have provided this platform and this opportunity to engage in this way. And many thanks to all of you for making time today. It's such a busy season for us as we you know, embark into our spring term. And I'm just so excited that you've taken time to be with me today and for Martin to facilitate this conversation. And just want to start off by saying happy NYU MLK week. As you can see, Martin and I have our banners, our virtual banners up. And I'll talk about that in a second, because in many ways, the legacy of Dr. King, his work and those who work with them very much influenced how I got to be here where I am today at NYU. And uh, Martin so graciously introduced my background my education, my professional, and my educational appointments in higher education. But I think it's important for me to be very clear and to articulate not just how I got here, but why I got here and what the impetus was that made me seek out these opportunities. And it all started, I think the, the kind of the catalyst moment for me or the defining moment for me that I remember was when I was five years old and my mother took me to the public library and I got a library card and I had a special wallet that she put it in. And I felt like that was the most awesome thing that could happen. And I had gone to the library before then, of course, with my older sister and brother, but my mother made it sort of a rite of passage that when you turned five and you were in kindergarten, you got to have your library card. And for me, it was exciting because I got to check out as many books as possible. And during those days, we had record players, you know, not the kind of technology we do now. There was no internet. So if you really wanted to find out something, you had to go to the library and pick up a book and do research. So those early moments where my mom really leveraged the resources that she had to educate us uh, were very important. And my dad, he was in the Navy for nearly 30 years as a master chief, he enlisted. So he wasn't always at home and present in the same way because he was out to sea. He was literally away. So we were a military family and my mother and my father thought it was important for us to stay in one place. So my dad would go out to sea and travel a lot, but we stayed pretty much at home in Chesapeake, Virginia, which is where I'm from. I'm a native of the Virginia, the Tidewater area. And even though I'm a first-generation student and my parents were working class, uh, I never realized that I was, you know, quote unquote, first generation or working class until I left that microcosm of, of being in Tidewater. And in addition to the kind of cataclysm uh, or the, the catalyst, you know, that moment that my library card provided me with, it, it, it let me see that there were people who lived in other ways and 
that there was a whole world outside of Tidewater, Virginia that I wasn't familiar with. And because my family was working class, we didn't go on vacation. We didn't go out to eat. You know, funds were very limited. And as I mentioned, I had an older brother and sister. So for my family to have three children and for us to be able to do what we needed to do, funds, funds were very limited. And I think the, the other thing that really inspired me was really the wisdom and the insight from my grandparents. And for me, it's so interesting to look at uh, how much intelligence and how much wisdom they were able to impart upon myself and my siblings and my family. But when I think about it, you know, my mother and her parents, as well as my dad and his parents, when you think about my grandparents, all of them had no more than an elementary, le elementary level education. In elementary level education, there were sharecroppers. My mother wanted to go to college. She was the oldest of 11. My dad was the youngest sibling in his family, also a very large family. I think he had eight or nine brothers or sisters. So when you're sharecropping and you're farming and you grow up in that kind of environment and you're someone who's in, tied into a system of segregation, education is very limited. And so my mother and my father made sure that for their children, you know, they would be able to have educational opportunities and always encourage us to do the best that we could. And so I came from a public school. I went to a public school. Uh, I was educated elementary through high school in a public school system. I had terrific teachers. I also had the good fortune of attending the governor's magnet school. So this is the bio before the bio, right, that I'm giving you, Martin. Uh, this is about my, my childhood. And those early experiences really shaped my purview about myself and my commitment and responsibility to, to the world. My teachers always told me that anything that I put my mind to, I could do. And my mother instilled that. She affirmed that. And so I really believed it. I thought, okay, well, I want to go to Princeton. I want to go to Harvard. I want to do all these things. And they were like, yeah, you can do it. And so I did it. And it was never a question about the color of my skin or my age or any of those social barriers that I think are so often challenges. And that's not to say they weren't challenges. They were, but I never let those obstacles or ways that people may have stereotyped me or thought about me be a barrier to pursuing academic and intellectual excellence. That's what I was born for. That's what my parents groomed me for. That's what my grandparents dreamed about for me. And so I feel like I'm the fulfillment of that realization. That's so awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your childhood. And I definitely related to it because I was born and raised in Qingdao, China. And before I came to came to the U.S., I never realized the, how diverse and really there's a, a lot of opportunities for, for me here in the U.S.A. And I definitely concur with how, because I remember that what my mom always told me is that being a good person is more important than everything. And as long as I put enough effort to it, the sky's always the limit. So thank you so much for sharing, um, sharing your childhood with us, Dr. Weaver. And I guess, which leads to my next question. And so after, I guess, as you enter, after you graduate from, from Princeton or up until this point, what do you think is the most defining point of your career? So I'm thinking, I'll, I'll think about it collectively, right? So you have, I did my undergraduate at Princeton my undergraduate degree at Princeton. And then, as you mentioned, I, I went on to pursue my graduate studies at Harvard and then did my master's and doctoral degrees at Columbia. And I, I think, honestly, my time as an undergraduate at Princeton was just transformational. 
it really gave me an opportunity to appreciate kind of the intellectual and academic rigor that is not only expected and required when you want to be committed to pushing higher education to be its best. And I think for me at that time as an undergraduate, when I initially matriculated, I thought that I would be a lawyer. So I was like, I'm pre-law. I'm going to be a Supreme, Supreme Court justice. And interestingly enough, I said that I was going to be the first African-American woman Supreme Court justice. So now that we're having these conversations, uh, people are like reaching out to me like, is that going to be you? And during my time at Princeton, my, my educational purview shifted in terms of what I thought I would pursue as a career. I initially thought that I would be a lawyer. And when I was doing my graduate degree at Harvard, I was actually training to take the LSAT and to go to Harvard Law School. I'll get to that story in a second. Remind me to get to the what shifted because that was the ultimate shift. During the time I was at Princeton, I thought, okay, I'll do education and law. I hadn't yet abandoned the idea of law, but it was people like Anel Painter, she's a historian, Cornel West, Toni Morrison. I actually kind of sat at the feet, you know, of, of these great intellectual towering figures who are globally recognized. When Toni Morrison won her Nobel Prize, we were there, you know, we were literally on campus when it happened. And so when the media was there, and I'll never forget this, she was like, it's great speaking to all of you. And now I have to go teach my students. And she left and went into class and people thought that she would take off and kind of, you know, I guess, talk to the media and, you know, do whatever. But she was like, no, I have to go talk to my students. And so that kind of commitment to the craft, to the work is what I was surrounded by, you know, and so being amongst individuals like that who really showed us what it means to be a committed educator. I don't think I even realized it then how much of an indelible impression they made upon me. So I and not only had the good fortune to study with these intellectual giants, the academic work that I did there was just so fulfilling. And then socially, I think having administrators who cared about us, and many of them are on the call today, so I want to applaud them uh, for the work that they do. Never underestimate how you influence your students. I know you all already know that, but I was so fortunate to have deans who worked in student life, our residence life, our facility staff. You know, there really weren't during that time a lot of people of color on Princeton's campus. Uh, and, and I mentioned the faculty that I did, but the staff and, and people in senior level positions were not really well represented. And so it was great to see people of color wherever they were. And, and many of the people in the town of Princeton, we became affiliated and connected with them as well because they wanted to see us succeed and they were proud of us for being there. And so I think for me, having that kind of academic awakening, I'll call it, being able to kind of see the the importance of this work. And I think being able to see different types of study, right? So looking at scholars who do African-American studies, scholars who do ethnic studies and having them to present that as critical scholarship was something that I was not accustomed to or, or being exposed to at the level that I had hoped in high school, right? So having that really impacted me and how I thought about higher education. And so I decided to go on to Harvard, still thinking I would do education in the law, and I'll never forget it. There was a class that I took with the late A. Leon Higginbotham. His wife, Evelyn Higginbotham, is now the chair of the history department at Harvard. And he encouraged me to go on to get my PhD. He didn't discourage me from getting my law degree, but I wrote a paper for him and I'll never forget it. And I got an A plus on it. It was, and I was so humbled that I got the grade. And he said, you know, you should really think about 
a history degree. He's like, my wife is a historian. And he said, the way you write and the way you think about this, I think, I think that's really your calling. And he said, I don't want to discourage you from the law, but I think that this is something you should think about. And I literally left his office and I cried. I was in tears and I was devastated because I knew that what he said challenged me to my core because I had initially sought out law because it's what I was familiar with. It sounded like something that uh, would allow me to kind of achieve my professional goals and dreams and financially be rewarded. But if I was being honest, it wasn't necessarily what I felt a calling or a passion for. I'd always thought of myself as a teacher, not a practitioner. And I knew that getting the PhD was actually more aligned to what I really wanted to do. I just didn't have any models you know, within my family or close circles. And so I had to kind of go back and reevaluate why I was doing what I was doing, what were my motives. And so it left me thinking that maybe law could be integrated into my work, but maybe the core of what I would do would be centered on education. And so when I did my PhD at Columbia, I did take classes at the law school. I did take classes at Union Theological Seminary, but my praxis and my lens was history, right? Being a historian and being a scholar who would be able to do that work. And I have to thank the late A. Leon Higginbotham, Judge Higginbotham, for encouraging me to kind of go against the grain because my family, they didn't really understand what it meant to be a historian. They were like, okay, we know what a lawyer is, but what does it mean to be a scholar? What does it mean to be a historian? And they're like, are you sure you want to do that? And I think that part of it was educating myself, but also educating them, you know, being a first generation student and also seeking out my mentors from my undergraduate years and, and trying to get a sense of what, what does this look like? And I'll be honest, being a woman of color, being in very academic and elite spaces, isn't always easy. There, there are uh, ways that people see you or perceive you, but I think that my grandparents and my mother always instilled in me, let your work speak for you, be excellent, show that you're talented, uh, that doesn't always work because people may still uh, look down upon you because of their preconceived ideas about how they see you as a person, you know, race or gender or other ways that you identify. And so I really try to become aware that even though I may be the only person of color, in some instances, be the only woman in the room who also happened to be an African-American woman, I let my work speak for me. And I think the excellence that was embedded in me as a child was something that I always tried to exhibit. And I think that the work ethic of my parents and what they instilled in me and their parents, my grandparents, uh, I wasn't just doing this for me. I was doing it for them. So, you know, that thing that you all have of how I got here, every room that I enter, my ancestors, they're coming with me. My grandparents are coming with me. My mother, she's there with me. My dad, they're there with me. And even now my kids, they're with me when I go into the room. I take their spirit with me because I know that so for so long, so many of the people who looked like me were not allowed to be in these rooms. They were not allowed to shape policies. They were not allowed to make change. And so I have an obligation, a commitment, and an expectation for myself that I'm going to go there and I'm bringing everyone with me when I go into that room. So when I enter the room, you're seeing Dr. Karen Jackson Weaver, but I'm feeling my grandparents, my mom, my kids, my husband, they're all there with me. Thank you so much. That was really powerful, Dr. Jackson Weaver. And I think this is something that we all, I, for me, I have to keep in mind in the future. And it's really about, at the end of the day, you just have to believe in yourself. And I think that's exactly what you did. And you exhibit that beyond expectations. And 
I, I kind of want to go back to the part where you make the transition from law to history because that's actually a pretty pretty different um, transition. And sometimes I feel like all the knowledge are like interactive with each other, interconnected with each other, whether in law and history. And it's about like the skills and habits that you develop, like I guess early in your career. So for you, what skills do you think you develop early in your career that kind of shaped you into the person you are today? That's a great question. Thank you for that, Martin. I think that, as I said earlier, the the by educational foundation. Interestingly enough, I'll, I'll just back up. I think coming into Princeton, I mentioned I went to public schools and uh, I didn't have the advantage of having. You know, I didn't even know what an SAT prep course was. So I, you know, when I took that, so I think there are ways that you can be excellent and groom yourself that I learned about once I matriculated to Princeton, once I you know, got to Princeton and I talked to people, they were like, you didn't take an SAT prep class? I'm like, what is that? I didn't even know you could do that. That's an option. Gosh, I wish I would have known, you know? Um, or even tutoring, right? Like, so getting tutoring or, or support in writing. I think I was a great student, like academically, I sell, I graduated from high school with a 4.0. So, you know, I think academically I, I excel, but I do think also, there were things that I could have definitely received refinement and enrichment in, right? And so as I as I trained, you know, and I did my master's degree at Harvard and I did my PhD, I think the training that I received both in my undergrad, graduate and graduate school, that collective ability to take information, to process, to synthesize and analyze was something that I think was priceless that I don't even know that they realized that they imparted in me. But as I think about my, collective educational experience, being able to look at data, whether it's a book or whether it's a report, and to be able to glean and synthesize, what is the author saying here? How is this important and how is this useful? Uh, that served we, me well professionally. And I think also uh, one of the things I'll, also, uh, I'll say, my grandparents and my mom, I mentioned about you know how much they influenced me and to think about how to navigate the world. And they helped me to understand that some of the information that you need will not always be there. Right. So the things that you really want to know and the questions that you ask and the responses that you want, you may not have everything that you need at your disposal. So how do you take the materials and in my case as a historian, the archives and assess what is there? What do you see and what's missing? And so I think having that perspective and having that kind of training and foundation has served me well professionally. So, you know, you mentioned in the introduction, the work that I did under three gubernatorial administrations. So working in government, working with high level policymakers, being able to kind of think through, well, what is it that we're charged to do? And I think that's always important whenever you look at a legislative issue or policy issue. What has the citizenry asked of us or required of us? And are we fulfilling our obligation and our commitment? And I'll say, at times I think that actually got me in trouble <laughs> because being someone who works as an executive director of a commission, I think, some people, well, I'll just say this, on occasion, some people would butt heads with me because they would say, you're being idealistic and we can't do that. And I said, is it we can't do it or we won't do it, right? So that, that there's a difference. And I think for me, because education was so important, I wanted to make sure that the kind of access, the kind of materials we created, the kind of programming that we did was accessible to everyone. I wanted to make sure that we were prioritizing that. And I think at times in politics, it becomes politicized instead of people realizing that what we're doing is for the greater good. It's for the citizenry and it needs to be accessible. I think for my academic career, when I think about 
my work as a dean at Princeton and then subsequently at Harvard and then my time as a dean in residence and visiting scholar at Oxford University at the Bavatna School of Government, it, it manifested in different ways. Because on one hand, part of my work encompassed look, you know, really deciding and sitting at the table to make a determination as to who would be admitted to our master's and doctoral programs, right? And so I'm one of the three deans making a decision for, and in Princeton, it was done. Every single student admitted from the master's and doctoral program, the department makes a recommendation, but the deans decide who is admitted and what amount of funding they get. So every single student, I read their files, I knew about their work and they were like, I'm in physics. How does she know what I'm doing research on? And it's because, because I read your statement of academic uh, or your academic statement, I read about your research. So the way their system works is such that the departments recommend, the deans read, the deans then determine you know, financially what makes sense. And, and at, at Princeton's graduate school, most of all of the doctoral students and most of the PhD programs are fully funded. And so part of our ability to evaluate was also to go back to the departments to say, well, are you doing as much as you can to diversify your pools? In physics, are women getting the equal opportunity to apply and be considered, right? In engineering, and then across other departments where there were areas of marginalizations or under, under marginalization or underrepresentation, going back to the, to the departments to say, are you doing all that you can? I continued that work as a dean at Harvard and overseeing the master's and the doctoral programs there as well for the admissions process. But these faculty, these world-renowned faculty and these staff members and being at the helm of making a decision about who gets in, who doesn't, what warrants someone being admitted and being very clear on what our standards are, what we're looking for in our candidates, what they will bring to the campus and making sure that before we get to the table, have we done the adequate outreach that we need to do to make sure that students have the kind of uh, information and access they need to learn about our programs. And I think my time at Bolvaknik, I'll say, being able to be there. And during my time there, I created the Executive Public Leaders Program. And this is for global ministers who work with premiers or presidents in different countries, giving them the tools that they need on a global level to think about their work, their systems, and how this would impact the, the citizens of their country or their particular region of the country and part of the world. And so for me, Having the ability to build upon what I learned in my graduate programs and then what I learned professionally in terms of assessing the information you have, looking at some areas that you may not have information, and ultimately thinking about what are the mission, what are the goals, what is the mission, what is the what are the values that we're saying, and how are we operationalizing and measuring what we're doing and, and if we're actually holding ourselves accountable. Those have been some of the tenets that I've used to, to guide me in my career and professionally that I think have helped me and the teams that I've worked with to be successful. Thank you so much. That was, I, I was just taking notes and then these are some of the things that definitely will, I will follow in my professional year to come. And I was just actually looking at data the other day that the percent of women engineering changed. It was, I think it was 3% in 1970 and now it has grown to almost 20%. And I really think that this is a, it's a very positive trend. And I really hope that because of, you know, people like you, Dr. Jackson Weaver, and that's why we're able to be more and more inclusive in, in the future. And I hope to see definitely a lot more positive outcomes in the future. And so, as you said earlier, you're currently working on some academic projects, which include several documentaries. And would you like to share with us a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. So there, I want to 
share a couple of things that I'm doing. I'm not a documentary maker, like I'm not trained as a filmmaker, but I am a historian. And so I'll give you a kind of a, a glimpse or snapshot as to you know the pathway there. And I didn't set out to you know uh, be a, a filmmaker per se, but I think as a historian, what I realized is the power of film. And I really have to thank my daughter Adia for introducing me to or helping me to be aware of filmmaking as a way to showcase uh, history, right? And so there are a number of projects that I'm working on that really emerge from my academic interests. For so long, I've been interested in the, the representation of women. You know, you talked about just now how the number of women growing in certain fields, uh, particularly in engineering, has shifted from the 70s until now. We're seeing more and more women pursue science and engineering uh, in terms of earning their undergraduate degrees and then subsequently going on to get their master's and doctoral degrees and being in leadership roles. But we're still not where we need to be. There's, if we look at the grade of growth in terms of how far women have gone in terms of earning their degrees in, in STEM fields, we still should see more women, right? We still should see more people of color getting their master's and doctoral degrees, being tenured as faculty members, being leaders in technology and other fields at executive levels. We don't see that. We should see that upward correlation and unfortunately we don't. And so we have to ask what's going on here? What's at play? And we can't say, you know, I really wanna address this and then I'm gonna get back to the, cause I think it fits into the, my pathway to the documentary, you know, documentary filmmaking in a, in, as a way to kind of show the importance of living history, right? And for me, what I've realized is that, you know, there are questions always around standards, right? So when we talk about women in STEM or people of color and numbers, you know, in the academy, a lot of people come to me and say, well, what about standards? And my response is, well, this, what do, what do you mean? So no one is saying anything about diversity does not equate with lowering of standards. It, diversity is synonymous with excellence, right? So that's what I have always said. And that's what I've always proposed in my work. And so I think there that kind of stereotypical thinking about, well, if we have more women or if we have more people of color, there's something that's gonna happen with the standards. And what I say, for example, with some departments that I've worked with in STEM, and this is across the board, what are your metrics? What are the rubrics that you're using to assess excellence? And I'll just say a number of schools for a while would only use the GRE, for example, the physics subjects test, subject test as a way to bring in students. Well, we know that that's not the only indicator of one's performance. Can we look at their transcript? Can we look at what their recommenders say? And so now it's interesting that so many schools have shifted away from the GRE as a sole you know, factor or sole source to measure someone's performance. But that wasn't the way that it was when I was a dean, when I was doing this work very early on in my, my career. And so I think many of us are really the catalysts and the conduits who pushed faculty and admissions committees, not just at Princeton or Harvard, but for me, it was a collective push, you know, with colleagues and peers that I work with throughout the country who are pushing people to say, yes, Fine, you can use the GRE or the SAT, but are you looking at their transcript? Are you looking at their letters of recommendation? And it does take extra work to do that, but I think that is so important if we're gonna see the kind of representation that is needed in those graduate school programs as faculty members, as leaders in the, you know, in different sectors. And so my work that I'm doing now on women, religion and power, that's one of the documentaries that I've been working on for some time, looks at this dynamic across faith traditions. You know, we see women very active in a number of congregations. They do so much work behind the scenes, 
but where are, how are women represented in terms of leadership, right? We don't see that correlation there. And so I'm really interested in that. And that's work that I'm doing now. And I, I hope to be, come back and share with you all sometime soon when, when I'm finished and, and done with that project. But it's been something that's been a passion project of mine for some time. And, and out of that work uh, and work that I really did when I was in residence uh, at, at the Bavatman School of Government at Oxford, centered on women's leadership, global women's leadership. And one of the things that we looked at there really centered on trends that we saw across fields in technology, in business, in the academy, in film. And so much of the work that we were doing centered on how do we, how do we show people and how do we help people to see that women are making progress, women are leaders, but we're not seeing that type of leadership and representation at the various highest level across many sectors, whether it's business, whether it's technology, whether it's the church. And so I, I hope to be able to come back and share with you all some of the, the, the filmmaking and some of the documentary work that we wanna do that centers not only on women in the church, but women across spheres, across sectors, where we don't see the kind of leadership that, that really is needed. And so I wanna make sure to share that with you. There are a couple other projects that I'm working on and some of the essays that I wrote and we'll make sure to share that with you all. I wrote a few essays about some of the, the writing that I've been doing and how it centers on the research that I've done, really which centers on really trying to examine how Dr. King worked with a number of women from the civil rights movement. We don't know their names. We don't really know about their leadership and how much of a conduit and catalyst, and I would say necessary ingredient they were to the success of the civil rights movement. So you have Septima Clark, who really was the architect of the citizen education schools, right? So she was the one who created this framework to think about voter registration. And now that may be something that we take for granted. I don't know, but, but when I saw that, it made me understand kind of the potency and the power of, of organizing to give people who were formerly disenfranchised a sense of being franchised. So getting the right to vote, she was the, the architect of that. Uh, I, I know many of you, I hope have heard of Ella Baker, she was actually the first executive director of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. But again, because of gender, most of the people in that organization were men, they were clergy. And so it was awkward for a woman, think about this during the 1950s and the 1960s to be in leadership with a group of black clergy men. And so I think her work in the civil rights movement alongside Dr. King is often obscured and understated. And so she went on to be a huge influencer in, in a number of social movements and really was the, the catalyst to bring about the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, which John Lewis got his started. The late John Lewis, the Honorable uh, Representative John Lewis from Georgia, that's how he got his start and, and doing work in the, in the movement. And then finally, Fannie Lou Hamer, there's so many, there's now more and more scholars are writing about Fannie Lou Hamer and the work she did with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. She was also an organizer from Smith, but she grew up on a plantation in Mississippi in the 1960s. And so I think so much of the work that those women did and their influence on the women's movement, the Me Too, Black Lives Matter, there's so many other social movements that have, contemporary movements, that I think have benefited from the very early work that these women did. And so in the chat, thank you all for putting that in. You'll see some of the essays that I wrote and it talks about John Lewis. It talks about these women. It talks about our current vice president, Kamala Harris and how 
she would not be there had it not been for other women, particularly women of color who paved the way. And she said that when she received the nomination as vice president. And I'll never forget that. And I, in the essay, I talk about how it made me proud to be able to see that she could point to people who had influenced her. And in one of my essays, Mama, Kamala, and me, I talk about that legacy of leadership. And so I hope you all will take a, 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 some time, read those and get a sense because what I really try to do is to make that link between history and what we're doing now, contemporary history. So I think it's really important to look at those trends and, and to not forget how the historical struggles the legacies that those individuals left for us, those are blueprints for our future. And I think it's so important to be in remembrance of those and then figure out how do we go from where we are to where we need to be. Thank you so much, Dr. Jackson Weaver. And I definitely agree with you. And I think not just in the stock scholar field and in, in all the fields that, because I remember in my sociology class, we we're talking about how only 8% of the female CEOs are in Fortune 500. And mm -hmm. really has nothing to do with their abilities because we see people like Susan Wojcicki, who is the um, CEO of YouTube, Rosalind Brewer. And those are all like, they're, very, like, they're people who excel in their field. And I think they're often overlooked and because of gender barriers. And I think this is really something that we as a society needs to um, definitely are, I guess for me, I, I think as a society, is something that we really need to improve on in the future. And so as we know, this year's theme is the beautiful struggle to a new world for MLK Week. And I was actually watching a video on NYU's a website about how MLK impacted our legacy. And I took some notes on some answers that I found to be really close related to the theme. So one student said he represented something that we all need to have a little bit inside of us and persistence to keep going. And while another student said MLK made me realize a lot of privileges were given because of the speeches he's, he's given. So Dr. Jackson Weaver, what does a beautiful struggle to the world mean to you? And how has Dr. MLK's, uh, MLK's legacy impacted your career and personal path? That's such a beautiful question, Martin. Thank you for that. And thank you for sharing the, the quotes from the students as well. Uh, I got to take that in. That was really well said. I'll, I'll respond to the second part first in terms of how Dr. King influenced me, his legacy, and then I'll answer the first part about the beautiful struggle. I, one of the things, I, actually, I don't know that you said it, but if you all go to my more extended bio, you'll see one of the pivotal moments in my career was being in residence as a visiting scholar at the King Center Library and Archives in Atlanta. I spent time there doing my dissertation research. And before she passed away, I had an opportunity to meet and interview Coretta Scott King. It was a life-changing moment for me. And it's interesting because my children were very small at the time and they remember, you know, I took them along and I'm meeting Coretta Scott King and she was interested in having a conversation with me about the research, but she was also wanting to know how, how was I doing? How were my children? How, how was my family doing? And I was struck by her, her ethic of care, right? This ethic of wanting to know how you're doing, wanting to know how she could assist in making sure that I was okay and my family was okay. And I took note of that uh, because as someone, a global figure, a global leader, having that ethic of care, it, it really made an impression upon me. And I could see that she and her husband had that ethic of care for humanity, 
right? So this was not something that they just talked about. It was something they lived. And I think when you talk to people who engage with them, that's what you see, right? You see the sense of care for humanity, the betterment of humanity. And so when I think about Dr. King's legacy, I, I think it's important to make sure that we're underscoring the legacy and that we also acknowledge that we would not be here, here commemorating his legacy were it not for Coretta Scott King, his wife. She was really the catalyst behind making Dr. King's remembrance a, a holiday, right? We wouldn't have the holiday with, without him. The, the King Center Library and Archives would not exist if it were not for her. She made sure that historians and researchers from all over the world had access or had, still have access to these priceless archival materials. It's the largest repository in the world. And Coretta Scott King is the architect and the strategist behind that. She's the, the, the individual who thought about this. And so I wanna credit her for keeping her husband's legacy alive. For, she was committed to the movement in many ways as much as, as her husband. And I think she saw her responsibility and her role to make sure that everyone across the globe understood Dr. King's commitment his, his legacy, and she wanted to make sure it wasn't just a holiday and that access to the center was something that people had and could do research on and have the materials that they need. But I think she also understood the importance of remembering Dr. King and his legacy as a constant call to action. What are we doing to serve humanity? What are we doing to make it better? And so for me, it may be being an administrator in higher education. And for you, Martin, it may be the work that you do. You know, you're, you're interested in the uh, hotel and hospitality industry. Maybe it's the work that you do and engage in that way. And so I, I don't think that Mrs. King was ever prescriptive in terms of how she thought about what it means to serve. I think in many ways, she wanted us to be mindful of, of what Dr. King said about service, right? That's something that we all can do. We all can give, we can all make humanity serving humanity a key priority. And so Dr. King's legacy for me, his, his living legacy is something that I really try to embody every day in my work. How, how do I do that? How do I serve humanity? How do I push people to be their best? And how do I bring my best? And I really think that's what he represented. And so I think you know the theme of beautiful struggle epitomizes that, right? It, it is not easy to do this work because I think Many of us come with prejudices, we come with biases, we come with preconceived about preconceived ideas about what the, the world should look like, what access should look like. And so it, it is a struggle, but I think why it's a beautiful struggle is because everyone has a seat at the table. Everyone has a voice and every voice and every perspective matters. And we don't have to agree, but I think there needs to be a space for civility, for mutual respect, and treating people with dignity. And I think the part of the problem is historically, uh, when you think about African-Americans and other marginalized communities, there has been a disregard, there has been disrespect, they've been economically, socially, and politically disenfranchised. So this idea of second-class citizenship or treating people as if they're subhuman, uh, we're very much still facing those contemporary realities. And so for me, you know, I'm thinking about my mother and uh, I lost my mom when, uh, to cancer when I was pursuing my PhD and she was diagnosed with cancer. And so I, my, my children never had the opportunity to grow up with her and to, to see her wisdom in, in real life or to have access to her. But she, she shared with me how when she went to vote, she had to pay a poll tax, P-O-L-L -L tax. 
right? And so I mentioned to you, she's the oldest of 11. They have very limited financial means, but because she was a black person, she had to pay a tax to vote. Now we all know that that's unconstitutional. You're not supposed to do that, but she and so many others paid a price or had to deal with these extra legal barriers and they didn't let it deter them. And so I think that determination, that endurance, that, that quest for equality, liberty, and justice, my mother, my father, they took that very seriously. And so when we talk about you know, democracy, particularly here in America, and what that means in terms of representation, what that means in terms of fairness, I think for me and what I've tried to teach my children, my daughter Adia and my son John, is that if, if we're really serious about what it means to be a democracy, then that means that there shouldn't be barriers. There shouldn't be legislative or other means of blocking people from being a part of the, the political process from being a part of the economic and social process. We have enough in America so that people can live well, they can be educated well, they can live well. And I don't think that that is a idealistic way of being. I think that's, I think that's an honorable way. And I think what we need to do is challenge ourselves to make sure that we're doing everything that we can to make that a reality. And so Dr. King, I think he lived that, he embodied that. I think Mrs. King lived that and embodied that. And I think our theme of beautiful struggle is extremely relevant for the times that we're living in, in 2022. So, so many of us are seeing the real challenges. We see them on the news. We're living in the midst of a global pandemic. And yet here we are today, you know, having this conversation. And so I think that it requires us to rethink how we've done things. I think it, it really, I think challenges us to think about kind of the status quo and what it has been. And I think it also, I think, challenges us to say, you know, struggle is not always bad. Sometimes we need to struggle. Sometimes we need to disagree, but we don't have to do it and be disagreeable. We can create beauty that emerges from the struggle, that is powerful, that is potent, and that is transformational. And so I, I think that's really important. And, and, and that's what inspires me. You know, that's really what inspires me to do this work because every day, Dr. King's legacy, what Mrs. King really attempted to do. And my parents and their, my grandparents, what they were really trying to realize, it's with me every day. Am, am I being my best? Am I living up to my best? And I'm, am I instilling in my children the realization that they can do their best and not let barriers or what other people think encourage them and inspire them? And so I try to take that with me every day, wherever I go. Thank you so much. That was, that was really powerful. And sometimes you know, if you think about it, freedom is also an ongoing struggle. And I was just looking at how not only Carita Scott King, but also Bernice King. And she was, she carried on her, her mom and her dad's legacy, which I think really corresponds to what you were saying too, how every time you enter a room, you have your kids with you, you have your mom with you. I think that's really about like the family tradition and family legacy, mm -hmm. the, how the King, like Dr. Martin Luther King, Carita Scott King, Bernice King, how they possess, like they have a longer mission. And so just like Dr. Martin Luther King, like they were, it was kind of destiny to them and how they were able to spread the message generation after generation. And just to make sure, just to like, for everyone to know like why they're there and what like their importance is to the, to the greater world. So really thank you for sharing that. So I guess my next question is, how do you think, how have our views on diversity and inclusion changed you think in the past decade or two? Uh, our, 
ideas change. And then also I wanted to be mindful, Martin, of other questions that are coming in because I know we're running out of time. And so if there are other questions that you want me to get to, I'll make sure to address those as well. But I'll start with that question about diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's interesting because when I was a student at Princeton, diversity wasn't even on the radar. It wasn't even the language, the nomenclature, the etymology that we used. It was multiculturalism. Right, so the multiculturalism, so the vestiges of multiculturalism in some ways are still in, in higher education here at NYU and other places. And so we've evolved from multiculturalism to what we now call you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, or what we say when we think about NYU's campus and the work that we do, it's global inclusion, diversity, belonging, equity, and access, right? So when we think about that intersectional praxis and lens, that's what we're pushing for, right? And I think it's so important because I think we underscore or underplay the importance of what it means to be inclusive and what it means to create a culture of belonging. What does that look like? And what that requires us to do, and for me in my work that I do on the faculty side, it's how do you take the information? So for example, we did a, uh, a climate survey some time ago to see how students, faculty and staff felt about belonging. And interestingly enough, across the board, one of the number one reasons people felt a sense of discomfort or wanted to leave NYU was because they felt a lack of sense of belonging and they often felt it in the classroom. And so we wanted to make faculty aware that, you know, yes, you're the experts, you're the one, ones who come to this with academic expertise, but the way that you're teaching and what you're teaching, are you emphasizing your expertise as well as opportunities for peer learning in the classroom? How do we make sure that the perspectives that are in the classroom and the way that people think about what, whatever the subject matter may be, that they're heard and they're listened to? And that doesn't mean that, as I said again, that you have to agree, but there is a way to show mutual respect. I think it's important to have community guidelines and expectations about what that means. What does it mean to be a global citizen, right? And so I think that's been so important. You know, we're a global university, we're a global institution, but what does it mean to be a global citizen? And, and how does that help you to then understand how you behave, how you act, and how you then implement the work that you do to be inclusive, right? To make sure that inclusion, when we think about global inclusion, diversity, belonging, equity, and access, it doesn't just become an acronym, but it comes an opportunity to be active, to operationalize that. How are we operationalizing that? And so I think for much of the work that I do, that's what I try to figure out. That's how I try to engage with faculty and departments so that we're not just using rhetoric or philosophical ways of thinking about this work, but how do we take the scholarship, the literature and the writing that has been done in this area and then apply it to what we know about curricular innovation and curricular development? How do we then apply that to recruitment as it relates to outreach for admissions in our undergraduate and graduate programs. What does that look like for faculty recruitment in terms of getting the kind of diversity that we want to see? And I mean that holistically and comprehensively, not in a very narrow way, in a diluted way. So I think it's important for us to be able to ask those questions and then create systems and processes that really allow us to be broad and comprehensive. And I think, unfortunately, Martin, many of our institutions have not had that kind of Frame, framing infrastructure or way of designing how they do the work. And so oftentimes what happens is when we talk about diversity work, or when we talk about creating diverse opportunities or, or ways of changing the curriculum or how we engage, it's done in a very cosmetic and additive way. 
And that doesn't work. It doesn't work. It has to be integrated into the very ecosystem of how, of how we function as an institution, right? So every school at NYU, every classroom, every unit, every office, what does it look like to do an audit, right? What does it look like to do an audit and assess? Do we see inclusion? Do we see diversity? Do we see belonging? Do we see equity? Do we see access? And what is the evidence of it? How do we know that we're doing it well? What, what are we measuring? How are we evaluating it? How are we assessing it? And are we doing it and measuring it and assessing this and evaluating it every single semester, every single year? And I think what happens is that we make it a nice to have, we add it on, but it's not fully integrated into the work that we do. And that's what we're pushing for, right? I think that's what we saw in many of the cries for transformational change right after the murder of George Floyd. I think there was this awakening and realization, not only in American society, but across the globe, that the way we've been doing things has really not been a, a true and authentic commitment to the kind of access and ways of thinking about inclusion, diversity, belonging, and equity and access that are really representative. It, it was more so rhetorical or, or incremental, but it wasn't really done in a way to foster the, and promote the kind of representation that we should see. And I think for those of us now in higher education, it is our obligation and commitment to not only operationalize this work, but to assess what works well, what doesn't work well, uh, and the same commitment and rigor that we approach all of the other things we do in the academy, we should approach to this work as well. And oftentimes that doesn't happen. And so my call to action for us today is to ask that question, am I committing the same level of academic and intellectual rigor to global inclusion, diversity, belonging, equity, and access? Am I measuring it? And how am I doing that? Uh, whatever you may be doing, whether it's on the student side, whether it's on the faculty side, or the staff side, we all have a commitment and obligation to do that work. Are we creating a culture of belonging? Are we creating a culture of inclusion? And is there evidence of that? Do people feel that? People may not remember, I think Maya Angelou said, people may not remember how, what, what you said to them. They may not be, remember the words that you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. And so I think that's so important as we go into this, You know, we're still in the middle of the pandemic, we're still trying to do this work, are we making people feel included? And are we remembering and honesty uh, what I talked about before about Dr. King and Mrs. King and their care of ethic, their ethic of care? Do we care about people and are we really demonstrating that in our words, our deeds and our actions? Thank you so much. And I guess before we turn over to Q&A, I just wanna say that like, always like be aware of the world around you. And it's, all about, it's about persistence and just always be grateful. I guess for me, like always be grateful that we wouldn't be here today without Dr. King or Mrs. King. And before uh, yeah, turn off the Q&A, I just wanna kind of end my moderating with a quote from Mrs. King. And it doesn't matter how strong your opinions are. If you don't use your power for positive change, you are indeed part of the problem. And this is something that I found to be extremely powerful. So right now, if you have any question, please feel free to put it in the chat or unmute yourself and ask. I love that quote, Martin. That was a wonderful quote. And I think that's a, an amazing way to kind of capture what we've talked about today. And as the 
the questions are coming in, I just want to invite you all to continue this conversation with me. I am on Twitter, not as much as I would like to be, but my, my Twitter information, social media, my LinkedIn information is also there. I think they're going to put in the chat again, the essays. I invite you to take a look at the essays that I wrote. And I'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas about the writings that I've done and the work that I've tried to do to illuminate Dr. King's legacy and how it's impacted all of us in the ways that I kind of still see work that, that we need to do. But Martin, I have so enjoyed our conversation today. You've been a wonderful moderator. You've asked some phenomenal thought-provoking questions. And how I got here, uh, being able to be here today as a guest has just been a pleasure, honor, and privilege. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. And Nicole, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. I was going to ask you a question about advice, but you answered it at the end. So thank you so much. We really, really appreciate you coming and speaking. It was an honor to listen to your experiences and everything that got you to where you are today. Oh, we have someone who raised a hand. Yes, go ahead. Yes, thank you. Good afternoon. I just want to compliment your achievements. And it really makes me feel good that you made being underprivileged a tool of power mm. and it can be used that way also I don't have to live in this that I wasn't born with this so how do I move forward I can I can be the start of something mm -hmm. it's not necessary that my forefathers started something it, it could just start from me so thank you I, I I humbly appreciate your motivation that you have put in me today Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that comment. I don't have anything else to say to that except yes, absolutely. And I think that for me, you know, being able to know that I have the opportunity and taking advantage of it, that was the motivation. And remembering, never forgetting, you know, the, the challenges and hardships but letting that be the motivation and inspiration. And I appreciate that you, you're, you know, you sharing with me that it was an inspiration. I hope that everywhere I go, I inspire people. That's really what I want to do. My mom, my dad, my grandparents, they inspired me. And every day I feel their love. I feel their legacy. And I see it in my kids, my son, uh, John, my daughter, Adia, and all of you here today taking time to, to be with us, to have this conversation. You inspire me. So thank you for making time. And let's continue to spread that positive energy around. We need more of that in this world. We need to be sources of inspiration, of hope and light and promise. I think that that's a great way to end our conversation today. So thank you for that beautiful comment. That was powerful. I think you're absolutely right. And I think you've inspired everyone on this call today. So again, thank you so, so much. And Martin, thank you for moderating. That was an absolutely amazing event today. Thank you to everyone who came and um, listened. And I also just want to say that we have two more high conversations happening in the next two weeks back to back. So every Wednesday in February, make sure you book your calendars. We have Adam Clayton Powell, the fourth next week. And then the following week, we have Professor Ron Naples. So we're really looking forward to those. And again, thank you so much, Dr. Jackson Weaver. We, we loved having you. So thank you everyone for coming. See you guys next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Take care, everyone. Thank you to Dr. Weaver. Join us next week with Adam Clayton Powell. The SPS Replay podcast is produced by the students of the SPS Student Council with Allie Weaver. 
Christine Long, Kyle Ronkin, Megan Finesto, Nick Fan, Samantha O'Connell, Sudan Gangwal, Vanshika Chaturvedi. Special thanks to the NYU SBS Office of Student Life. Follow us on Instagram at SBSUSC and at SBSGSC, and on LinkedIn at NYU SBS Student Council for more updates and content. Thank you so much for listening, and see you on the next episode.